Our scripture reading comes today from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you, o, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who was a shepherd, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had been according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah a voice was heard in ramah weeping and loud lamentation rachel weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more sheris gets a prize for one of the longest readings of the year that she had to do let's pray together Father, we just thank you for, again, for the privilege of worshiping you here this morning. And we pray that as we uh, reflect on this story and the worship of these wise men, uh, that you would fill our hearts with worship as well. Help us to see you break through uh, all the noise and and the crowdedness of our hearts uh, so that we may see uh, your greatness and see what you may have to say to us here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, uh, I started listening to Serial, which is a a podcast that has become uh, incredibly, even uh, massively popular. So this week, I I joined in with the trend. If you haven't heard of it, Serial is a a 12-week podcast 
that examines uh, a murder case that happened here in Baltimore in 1999. And I warn you, if you start it, you won't be able to stop. If you have listened to it, don't talk to me about it because I haven't finished it, all right? But I warn you, if you do start, it's really good. But if you do start, you won't be able to stop. But it really is this 12-week podcast that talks about this one really interesting murder case that happened uh, here in the, in the Baltimore area uh, in, in 1999. And the entire case is centered around a 21-minute period of time that happened one afternoon in January. And what's so interesting about it is how one 21-minute period of time can offer so many different perspectives. One event that happened in a 21-minute period of time has so many different perspectives from so many other different people that participated in that 21-minute segment of time. You know, this Christmas season, we, like many other churches, have been talking about the Christmas story. We've been talking about one single event that happened uh, over 2,000 years ago. And we've looked at one event, but we've seen that so many people have had so many different responses to this one event. We've seen how Mary responded with a, a very quiet and contemplative wonder. We saw how Zechariah responded initially with doubt, and then that doubt was transformed into belief. We've seen how John the Baptist responded to, to the advent of Jesus with urgency and passion. We've seen Simeon, who responded to Jesus' birth with just a settled sense of peace and satisfaction. We've seen the angels, along with the shepherds, respond to Jesus' birth with incredible shock and amazement. But there were all sorts of other responses to Jesus' birth as well. And one has to think what causes so many people to respond in very different ways. And the answer has to come down to the heart or the condition of the heart of the person who was involved in this event. What we find is that each person's response is determined or conditioned by the state in which their heart is in. You know, our heart really is the basis of, of who we are. It affects the way we think. It affects the way we act. It affects the way we feel. It determines the choices that we make day in and day out. And it often determines our responses to the things that happen in life. John Calvin, who was a, a reformer and a theologian, wrote a lot of really profound things about the nature of the heart. And what he said is that our hearts by nature are worshiping hearts, that they naturally worship things. And one of the things that he argued is that all of us, because the heart is, is destined to worship, all of us at all times are worshiping something. We give our affections, we give our emotions to something and to things that end up affecting the entirety of our beings. And because we are worshipers, we are always in the process of finding objects in which we give our allegiance and our affections to. So what Calvin talked about is that when we choose not to worship God, then naturally we need to find God replacements 
or God's substitutes. And he calls them idols. And he actually says that our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly in the business of worshiping God replacements, of worshiping lesser things. In fact, one pastor wrote that sin is not simply doing bad things. It is putting good things in the place of God. And what we worship ultimately becomes linked to our hearts. It becomes linked to the very essence of who we are. So therefore, what we worship determines how we respond to things in life. And ultimately, it determines how we respond to Jesus and God himself. Matthew, in the story that we read offers us two contrasting responses to the birth of Jesus. He shows us how King Herod responded to the birth of Jesus. And he also shows us how these mysterious characters called the Magi responded to Jesus as well. And what I'd like to do this morning is just very quickly look at those two different responses that these people had to Jesus. Many people have uh, taken note that, uh, uh, of something that J.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien once said. If you don't know who J.R. Tolkien is, you've probably seen his movies. He wrote the Hobbit movies. He wrote the Lord of the Rings uh, movies. He was a, a master storyteller, and he often had a lot of things to say about stories and how we tell stories. And one of the things that he warned against was inadvertently cleaning up stories that were messy. He says, if we try to clean up messy stories, then we end up ruining the stories. Well, I think we often fall into that uh, tendency when it comes to the Christmas story. We tend to to sanitize uh, the mess that really was the Christmas story. We think of these beautiful, angelic manger scenes where wild animals uh, inadvertently were bowing down to some manger and everybody was happy and nobody was nervous about everything. And it was this kind of wonderful, nostalgic Norman Rockwell sort of painting scene. But the reality of the Christmas story is much different. It was a much messier story than we even realize. But this particular chapter, especially when it comes to Herod's response, is when the story gets even messier. Our story tells us about Herod, a very messy character himself. He was the king of the Jews, and he'd been appointed to that role uh, by the the Roman authorities that, that outranked him. And even though he was the king of the Jews, the Jews themselves hated him. Because he was a foreigner. He felt like this foreigner who was imposed to govern them. And they hated him. And they they tried to oppose his rule as much as they could. Partially because he was a foreigner, but also because he was a brutal ruler. When he had come to power, he almost exterminated the entirety of the Jewish nobility and the priesthood. And they hated him for it. You see, he was always living in fear that he could lose his power. He lived in fear that people would would rise up and try to steal his power from him so he would brutally put down any sort of opposition that came his way. 
that same fear chose him or drove him to actually execute two of his very own sons and their mother for fear that they would try to steal his power away. He was a frenzied and senseless tyrant who ruled for close to 30 years over the Jewish people. And he was a paranoid character who lived in constant fear that he would somehow lose his throne. You see, the idol that Herod worshipped was the idol of power. You know, there are a lot of, there's lots of idols that can capture our hearts and steal our affections away. A relationship that becomes too important to us can become an idol. A job or a hobby can become an idol. The pursuit of wealth can become an idol that determines our responses and makes us choose things in all sorts of different ways. Success, achievement, pleasure, all those things can become idols. But an equally powerful idol that we all need to wrestle with can become the same idol that Herod worshipped, and that is the idol of power. If you've ever seen a political drama or some sort of DC drama, you know what this idolatry of power really looks like. And what makes the idolatry of power so enticing is that it fuels this desire in our hearts to be our own gods. It fuels this desire for us to to be able to control all the, the things in our lives and the people that exist in our lives. See, the scriptures tell us that from the very beginning, mankind lusted after power. From the very beginning, all the way back to the garden, we have wanted to be our own gods. And ever since then, we've been enticed to the idolatry of power. And ever since then, It has made absolute messes of our lives. We will destroy anything that gets in the way of our lust for power and our desire for independence. Anything that threatens that, we seek to put down and to rid of our lives. You see, Herod worshipped this idol just like you and I tend to do. So that when the wise men came to him, discerning or desiring to know about a new king of the Jews that had been born, then Herod goes mad. This sets him off because these people were coming and telling him that a change had come. That a new king had risen to the throne and because of it, it made him senseless and it made him irrational. So immediately he deciphers a plan. He will follow the wise men. They will lead him to Jesus and he will do to Jesus what he has done to every other person in his life who has threatened his authority. He will kill Jesus. But fortunately, through a divine intervention, this plan is foiled. It won't work. So immediately Herod launches into another plan, a new plan. And what he does is he sends in soldiers to Bethlehem to butcher and to kill all male children that were under the age of two. 
Male children who would be ripped from their arms of their mothers and fathers and brutally slaughtered right in front of their parents. No doubt that evening, the sound of people crying out in anguish filled the entire city of Bethlehem because their children were taken from them and executed all in one evening. Now, fortunately, the story tells us Mary and Joseph were warned. They were warned by an angel. So what they did is they fled. They fled in order that Jesus could be protected so that Jesus could be delivered. And the scriptures tell us that Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt. In a sense, poor people became even poor. They became refugees that would have to flee to Egypt. For some, and some believe that they actually had to live in Egypt for close to seven years. And no doubt as they fled to Egypt, they would have remembered Simeon's words just weeks before. Because Simeon told them that people would have very different responses to Jesus. Some would accept him and others would vehemently reject him. And that that vehement rejection would not only cause others great pain, but it would also call Mary, cause Mary and Joseph great pain as well. And already they are experiencing the pain of those who rejected Jesus. Already those words were being made true. You see, Herod was, he did all this because he was drunk on the idol of power. It led him to reject the one true king that had come and reject him with force. But the reality is the same happens to us, maybe in not such violent or maybe such powerful ways, but our idols often get in the way of us coming to Jesus as well. They often disrupt our relationship with him. They get in the way. They disrupt what, what could be an incredible life-giving relationship with him. But instead, because we tend to worship lesser things, our relationship with God becomes harmed and sometimes completely blocked by these idols. But Matthew is not just intending to tell us the story of Herod, but he's intending to show us a comparison because he offers us a different response, and that is the response of the Magi. We often think of these mysterious characters as kings because that's what the song tells us, and of course the song can't be wrong. But the reality is these were, these were probably not kings. They were actually probably not just three of them as well. So, Remember that next time we sing that song. The, but we do know that these were kind of mysterious characters. We don't know a whole lot about them, but they were foreigners. They had probably come from, from the region of, of uh, Arabia. Uh, and most likely they weren't kings, but they were probably astrologers or people that studied the natural sciences or, or philosophers of the day. And we don't know all the ins and outs of it, but we know that they observed a unique star and they desired to follow that star. And that star brought them ultimately to Jesus himself. And what our passage tells us in verse 11, he, Matthew tells us that going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts Gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
You know, probably when they followed this star and when they entered into Jesus's presence for the first time, they were probably just as surprised as everybody else was that this was the new king. Because when they walked in that room, they didn't see a king who was sitting on a throne. Instead, they saw a baby who had been born to peasants. He wasn't a king who had come in might, but he was a king who had come in the midst of poverty. He did not come in strength, but he came in meekness. He did not come to conquer, but he came to confound the strong. He redefined for us greatness. He defined it in terms of simplicity and humility. He came not to conquer, but instead he came to, to, to serve. And yet, even though he was different than the king that they expected, they immediately knew that this was the true king. And they fell on their knees and they worshiped him. Immediately, they saw the hollowness of worshiping any other God that might compete for their attention. And instead, they worshiped him and they gave him gifts, gifts that were fit for a king. No lust for power, no desire for wealth, no other idol got in the way of them worshiping this one and true king. Because no idol could match what they had witnessed in Jesus. So they gave their allegiance and they gave their worship to him alone. So what Matthew does in this comparison is he shows us different responses to baby Je- the baby Jesus, but he doesn't want this to just be an academic exercise. He wants his readers to ask what could be the most fundamental question that comes from the Christmas story, and that is, what will our response be to Jesus? He wants us to ask, what are the idols that define our hearts day in and day out? What are the idols that may get in the way of us worshiping Jesus like those wise men did? The question before us is, will we, just like Herod, continue to allow those idols to define our lives, to define our experiences, to define our behaviors, and ultimately define our responses to Jesus? Or, like the Magi, will we behold his greatness? Will we forsake all those lesser things, all those lesser idols, and will we worship him alone? Will we be willing to stop trying to be our own gods, to stop trying to control everything and manipulate our lives as if we were gods, and instead will we bow our knee and worship the one true God? See, the reality is when we worship idols, it makes an incredible mess out of our lives. But when we truly worship God the way we were designed to do, It doesn't necessarily mean that God cleans up all the mess, but what it does do is it offers us peace and satisfaction and ultimate joy. But you know, passages like this often leave us with really hard questions as well. Questions that it's good for us to ask, but maybe we won't always find the answers to. 
We don't know why God would allow several, maybe hundreds of innocent children to be butchered and killed by an evil tyrant. We don't know why he would allow all of these parents in Bethlehem to have to suffer such incredible anguish and pain, really for the rest of their lives, having witnessed this. These are questions we just simply don't know the answers to why God would do this. But we do know that we serve a God who is acquainted with our grief. We do know that we serve a God who understands what our grief really feels like. Because we serve a God who understands what it's like to watch his very own son be ripped from him and brutally executed. He knows what it's like to to lose a son, to lose a child, because God himself would give up his very own son so that you and I could find life. Because of that, he is like no other idol or like no other God that this world has to offer. And because of that, he deserves our love and he deserves our worship.